This podcast is brought to you by Eventide, makers of the legendary Harmonizer. Their new H9000 is the culmination of almost 50 years of audio innovation. To learn more about their award-winning effects processors and plugins, visit eventideaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Tony Visconti needs no introduction. His name is synonymous with the long career of David Bowie and also his work with other important artists like T-Rex, Gentle Giant, The Moody Blues, Thin Lizzy, Adam Ant, Morrissey, The Alarm, Angelique Kijo, Iggy Pop, The Damned, and countless others. We interviewed Tony in 2002 for Tape Op issue number 29, but it seemed like a great time to reconnect And that's exactly what online publisher Jeff Stanfield did at Tony's New York City studio in October of 2019. Enjoy. Well, well, thanks again for doing this. And um, uh, you were just mentioning London. And um, I had had a conversation with Richard yesterday. And as... um, conversations with mutual friends often will do it sounds like we had a little bit of a game of telephone which I thought was yeah. really funny because your, your response to my email was made me laugh um, so I, I would love to talk about your you know very sort of the very early part of your career where you were living in Brooklyn and then okay you're, you're in London so how did you get to London I got to London uh, because I was writing songs and uh, I had I was embarking on a career as a songwriter singer songwriter with my wife then whose name was Sigrid and we were kind of a, 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 a psychedelic version of Sonny and Cher oh nice yes and um, so one day I'm in my publisher's office and he said to me I uh, I don't like your songs Tony I just don't like them but I love your demos so at the time, I had a little demo studio at home, and I could, I could do a fair amount of uh, overdubbing and get, get my demos to sound really professional. So I thought I was fired. I thought that was it. I had no future whatsoever. Fired from? From the music business, okay, you know, from the recording like, there's, there's business. There's just no hope. I thought I was going to go back and play weddings and bar mitzvahs. You know, I, right. I, I could read and write music, so I, I could play with big bands, anything, you know, any job available. But I thought this job was closed to me. And then um, I met um, a uh, in the same office, in the publisher's office, I met a British record producer called Denny Cordell, who had produced uh, groups called The, the Move, and uh, Denny Lane from the, from the original Moody Blues and a, a woman called Beverly. And he had a new group called Perkle Harum. So I met him by the, the water cooler and I went for a cup of water and he, so did he. And then we got to ch- chat and he said, uh, what do you do here? And I, I said, well, I've just become the house record producer. And he said, well, so am I in London. I'm for the same company. So we um, really bonded on that. Uh, he said, can I play you my latest production? So we found an empty office, and he played a, a whiter shade of pale to me. And I just couldn't believe what I heard. This, you know, I already loved the Beatles, 
and the Rolling Stones and Donovan and, and you know I had so many British favorites uh, that that made me long and yearn to go over to London and now he's playing me Prokel Harum who I, I couldn't even make out what their genre was it was R&B right, right. but um, so anyway he said um, I've, I've got a session down the road and uh, I'm recording a, a little track for Georgie Fame who I already loved already Georgie Fame was like a, a kind of a, a jazzer who uh, did, a, did a few pop records okay so, it, and I and I said, well, can I watch? Can I can I can I see the charts? Because he was using Clark Terry on trumpet, you know, famous jazz guy and all that, and a famous uh, rhythm section. Like I I couldn't hire these guys; they're all top-notch people. Right, right. But I wanted to see how what what was happening. So he said, uh, I don't have any arrangements. I don't have a chart. And I said, well. This is Local 802, Musicians Union Local 802. If you ask Clark Terry and all those people to write the chart, you're going to be paid triple. You know, you have to pay them triple, right? right. So um, he he turned white and said, "What can I do?" I said, "I can write you a chord chart. I can write you those trumpet parts on the demo, that uh, over the chords. I can write the drum breaks, all on one sheet of music." He says, really, you can do that? And I said, watch my speed. And I did that in about 20 minutes and put it on a Xerox machine. It was, how, how old were you? I was time? 22. Okay. 22 years old. And uh, we made about seven or eight copies and ran down the road to A&R Studios, which was uh, Phil Ramone's studio. He was the R in the A&R. And there was the band. There was my idol, Clark Terry on trumpet. And the session was a success within 30 minutes. We had a backing track. No Georgie Fame. Georgie Fame was back in London, you know. Right. And he looked at me very admirably and he said, I'm looking to find uh, an American arranger, co-producer to take back to London with me, to, to hire in London. And he said, I'm going to put you on my list. And he said, uh, I'm going to go to L.A. tomorrow and, and see Phil Spector and see if he'll come back to London with me. And I said, well, good luck on yeah, that. Yeah. Good luck getting Phil Spector to be your assistant <laughs> right. producer, you know. So um, about two weeks later, I got the phone call. When could you come? And uh, this was, to me, it was such a shock because I had no means of buying, even buying a plane ticket. I was really poor. And my, my wife and I were struggling. We were, we were doing like, uh, I, I was doing, I was still doing weddings to make a living so we could afford our rent. Sure. And... Uh, so I was, on, I was on a plane in about a week's time, landed in London, and the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> yeah. So how did you find yourself becoming less of part of the artist community or making that a focus once you got there and having to actually really learn that trade? You know, what did you see that you, you borrowed and went on to use as part of your DNA in terms of your production? Well, I knew how to make records. I mean... It was no mystery to me. I'd been a session player. I've been on other people's sessions. I heard that voice from the control room. In those days, that they would come out of a speaker. You weren't allowed in the control room in the, in the uh, late 60s. Uh, only in London, I found out that everyone was more open and free, and you could go into the control room and listen on the big tannoy speakers, you know, instead of one big mono speaker out in the room the way it was in America. And uh, he, uh, after my first night was incredible. I, I heard a white label of Sgt. Pepper's. His friend brought one back to the apartment, and it, this was three months before it was released. 
So that I knew I entered a kind of a mystical fairy tale situation here. This is something right. in all my 22 years never happened to me. Not, not this close to the insider business of right. the music business, inside business there. So the next day, I go to a session with him, Manfred, a Manfred Mann session. And uh, they were a tough band. They had hits. They'd been around the block several times. And he was producing them. And then he announces to me, this is my second day, five hours into the session, that he's got another session down the road. He, he was very popular at the time. And he said, I'm going to leave you in charge for a few hours. So I had only watched him work for five hours. And then he says, bye-bye, <laughs> and leaves me with, with Manfred Mann. And like, there is a form of uh, British cynicism and humor mixed together that I wasn't aware of. They spoke to me in the rudest of terms, like whenever I made suggestions and all that, uh, very sarcastic right. things they were saying. And I, and I actually said, I said, you know, in Brooklyn, them's fighting words, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But we managed to get through it. I mean, when I said, okay, um, here's take seven, lucky take seven, they went, oh, my God. God, you know, when I said lucky take seven, I mean, that, that was so apparently so corny, they couldn't even contain it, you know. So that was my, my, my trial of hellfire. <laughs> the third day got a little bit better. I was with Denny all day, and he introduced me to Denny Lane from the Moody Blues and announced that he was going to produce records with Denny Lane as a solo artist and that I should write strings for Denny Lane. So this is the main reason why Denny Cordell brought me over to England to be a musician, to be an arranger, and to integrate and be a liaison between him and his artists, because he could not read or write music. He could hum ideas, sing ideas, but you know he's a little shy about that. He wouldn't do that in front of Clark Terry, but he would do it in front of me. We had this lovely relationship right off the bat. So I was interpreting his ideas, throwing in bits of my own from my experience. And we got along like that for about six, seven, eight, nine months maybe before I even produced a, a record on my own. And that was from his recommendation. He says, you should go out and find somebody of your own now. Because by then I knew how to be more confident and be more comfortable. And I was getting anglicized. You know, I was, I was mm -hmm. developing my own form of sarcasm and cynicism. Sure. And uh, even a little bit of an accent, you know. So I, I kind of went native. And that, that's how, like, it was a very intense year that first year. Sure. That's how I really got good in a very short space of time. I worked night and day. In this period now where, where you are, you, you find David Bowie and, and Mark Bolin. Yeah. And do you sign them to a production deal? Is that is That's that right. an accurate? Um, uh, like, no. Well, how did how did yeah, talk about that a little bit? Okay. Well, one of the first things I did when I was told to go out, uh, well, before I found Mark Bolin, I was assigned a few other people. De people did walk into our office and want to be produced by Denny, and Denny felt that I should be the producer of those people rather than him. And uh, there was one guy called Bidu, who was an Indian. Uh, musician and singer who went on to be, uh, he, he, he wrote that song, Everybody's Kung Fu Fighting. Oh, yeah. You know, of so he was like, not that, at, not at that level yet, but I, but Bidu was actually my first production. Didn't work out. And uh, when I told Denny, Denny said to me, just go find pe people that you are f can work with, that you feel you can work with. So my first night out on the town, I noticed that there was a, a group called Tyrannosaurus Rex 
that I saw advertised a lot in the DJ John Peel liked them, and I like John Peel's uh, taste in music. So I went to this club and saw Mark Bolin and uh, Steve Peregrine Took sitting cross-legged on the stage on a little, little tiny carpet, singing to a mesmerized audience of about maybe 200 kids. You know, they, 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 and I had no idea. It was a dark stairwell, and I'm, I'm used to rock and roll where there's like people standing up and dancing around and things being noisy. But I saw the magic power that Mark had over, had over the audience. This was something I wasn't quite expecting. I, I wanted to, to discover the next Beatles. Mm -hmm. So I, that's what I expected to find. You right. know? So I went up to Mark afterwards. I was, I was mesmerized too, and I, and I spoke to him. And uh, he asked for my business card. He, act, he acted very blasé and said, uh, you're, you're the seventh record producer who came in this week to watch us. And uh, John Lennon was here last night, and he wants to sign us to his label called Grapefruit. He was, <laughs> he was making all this stuff up, you know, which uh, is kind of the kind of person he turned out to be. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the next morning at 10 a.m., he rings from the street from a, a call box, puts his money in, you know, he calls us up, and he said, we just happen to be passing your office, and we'd like to come up and uh, uh, play play music for Denny Cordell. We'd like to audition. I said, well, I put my my hand on the phone, and right. Denny's sitting there, and I said, this is that band I was telling you about last night. So he said, invite them up. So they did. They came up, and they had that little carpet with them. They put it on the floor, sat down on the floor, and went through the set that I had heard the night before. And Denny did like them, and... Um, said, okay, we'll, we'll call you and leave us a number and all that. And as, as they left, he said, well, one thing we don't have on our label is an underground group. So this will be our token underground group. This is his exact words. And um, so that's what happened. He sort of agreed to that and you ended up going in and... Uh, yeah, he said, go make an album. Go make an album with them. And I'll give you 400 pounds, which even by today's standards, that's not a lot of money. That, that's sort of like today maybe... I don't know, a thousand dollars, right? You know, you you were already mentioning that Mark was had a, a bit of a thin attitude. attitude, you know. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I want to talk to you about—it's a little bit more of an overarching question, but it applies here—is that um, it seems a little different then for, for people just sort of walking in the door or you going there and just saying, "I like your music, let's work together," as opposed to the relationship that you later had with with David, where you guys had a really great friendship and you had a really amazing sort of working relationship and friendship and how impactful that was on the music and the way that that was let yeah. David be, you know, who he needed to be in a probably a very comfortable place. Yeah. You just walking into a club and saying, let's make a record essentially with this band and, and then, you know, you don't really even know these people. No. Um, so how did how did that all sort of uh, well I did play out Mark and I uh, made uh, he came to my apartment I had a, a stereo uh, tape machine in my apartment in Earl's Court and before we went into the studio knowing I only had four days in the studio which was um, two days to record two days to mix uh, he recorded all those songs that set and I still have that tape you know live and sitting down in my living room. And uh, we became friends, consequently, because he liked my, my apartment. I, he lived with his mom and dad. Okay. 
And uh, so he loved coming to my apartment. So he became a friend as well. And okay. we, we had a, a friendship almost until the day he died. Right. You know? So you developed a rapport with him yeah. before you even... You, you needed know, to. Through, through, yeah. I mean, that is, that's what I was sort of getting at. Yeah, I, I, I also had an electric bass and an, an electric guitar in my flat, which he didn't have, you know. So right. that was another lure, you know, that. And later on, the bathtub, because when he, he lived away from his mom, he lived in a place that didn't have a bathtub. So he used to come to my house once a week with his girlfriend to have a bath, you know. You can't get friendlier than that. Come on. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, multiple levels of uh, friendly... So, like, if you to answer your question, about a month, month or two later, my uh, Denny Cordell's partner calls me in, and he's a publisher, and he said, "I, I published this guy called David Bowie. Um, we don't know what to do with him." He's and he said, "Let me play you some stuff. If would you mind?" And I said, "No." He played me three songs from his uh, first album before Space Oddity. It was a, on a company called DRAM. And one song was like a pop song. The next was like a very morbid Halloween song uh, and called Mr. Gravedigger. And uh, a third one was like a musical, like Anthony Newley, like What Kind of Fool Am I? You know? okay. So I said, to, and he had a lovely voice, and he, I could tell from his lyrics he was great. But I told uh, David Platts, the man who was his publisher, I said, he's all, all over the place. He's just all over the place. He goes, you're right, he is all over the place. He goes, but... You, are, you seem to be an expert with these weird artists. And he was referring to Mark Bolin. Oh, right. And he said, maybe you could get him uh, you know, under control. And I said, well, I, I would. I, I think I like him a lot. And he goes, well, would you like to meet him? And uh, he, I said, yes, I would. He goes, well, he's in the next room. And uh, David was waiting in the next room. This was a setup. Oh, <laughs> it was destiny. Yeah, David was waiting in the next room to meet me, and uh, we. Sp I'll cut a very long story short. We we had about a million things in common, from Frank Zappa to an underground group called the Fugs. We we loved anything strange and right. weird and uh, underground, and we spent the whole day together. Like when the office closed, we just kept talking and walking and having a conversation, and he became a, a really f good friend almost immediately. Right. I mean, that's so amazing that from the very seed of the relationship all the way to Black Star, you guys both have maintained, and I know this because we have mutual friends, and that your passion for music and, and, and new artists and being an avid listener, and the same goes for David. When I mean, when I heard that David Bowie had heard Sun Kill Moon records, I just about, you know, lost my mind. Yeah. I was so... I was so I was so happy to hear that. Um, yeah. Not for my own, like, sort of like, wow, that's amazing. But, but just that somebody that had achieved that much, they never, e e either of you really have, have never checked out or just sort of rested on your laurels. It seems like there's been a constant desire to stay in it, be relevant, be an avid music fan and a, and a real listener of what's going on. I think yeah. that that's a... Uh, important to sort of point out, you know, because of what you just said, like you'd stay after and just put your favorite yeah. weird records on it. We had that, a great relationship about uh, discovering other artists and then we turn each other on to those, those artists. You know, we were always on the lookout for something new and different. That happened with uh, Young Americans when uh, he was saying, he was doing uh, live, he was already doing a Bruce Springsteen song called Saint in the City. And, uh, I had a good friend who was a DJ at WMMR in Philadelphia, and he just announced on the radio 
about an hour before I went to the recording studio that Bruce Springsteen came in the studio and dropped off a cassette of his new album. So I phoned my friend and I said, could you bring Bruce Springsteen to the studio because David Bowie and I are making a record here and I know David would love to meet him. So I've got a great, great photo from that day. Bruce came in, he was, he was nobody then. He was very underground, very unknown, only, only known in the tri-state area, the New York okay. tri-state area. Had he been making records yet? Yeah, he was, well, I, maybe this Park was his very or... first album. I don't know how David, David heard of him, but he, he heard about him, but I, neither of us heard his music, uh -huh. so I, I, except Saint in the City. So obviously he had made it, at least one album, okay. and David knew that one. And uh, that kept going through, you know, we, we would start every album with like, have you heard this person lately? Have you heard that? Like Mercury Rev or something like that. We'd make a few references because there were, were people out there who David could make an association with or, or could see that they're doing something a little different, a little bit off the beaten path, which was always his mode to go a little off the beaten path and all that. Yeah, I mean, it's very clearly that it was a constantly like not just do the same record. Why? We just made it, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, we never repeated ourselves. The one thing we used to say was like, because everyone sees the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers as, as the, the pinnacle of the Beatles career, we always said to ourselves, we're going to go in every album. We'd say we're going to make our Sergeant Peppers now. This is going to be our best album ever. You know, lofty goals. Good, yeah. <laughs> good. good. And, we, and then it became a joke afterwards because we made like Scary Monsters, and then it became like, God, I hope we can make a record as good as Scary Monsters again. Right. Right. <laughs> that was a good record. So the first record that you worked on with David was Space, Space Oddity. Oddity, right? Yeah. And. Um, where did you guys do that, and what was that? What was that process like? Was it fast? Did you make that record quickly? Like, well, prior to that, we made a few singles for his DRAM oh, right. label, which didn't work out. For they had, they were putting all their money on Cat Stevens at the time, and they dropped David. Apparently, they they couldn't keep both artists. They just dropped David in favor of Cat Stevens. So with Space Oddity, uh, he was he got this deal with Mercury Records, and Amer his manager got him a deal with Mercury, and. Um, we're going in, they knew, they knew that we were making this new album. They liked the, the new material, uh, which was kind of folk rock. You know, all the other records, uh, Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed, all those, uh, Janine, all those, those songs, they were written on his 12-string guitar. I was finally doing, I was doing what, what his publisher told me to do, was keep them in this one style that people can relate to. And that was his kind of folk rock style. Just before we start making the album, he writes Space Oddity. I don't know what inspired him. Well, I do know what inspired him, but uh, I didn't think he would write a song about it. And that was that he and our friend, a guy called Sam Hutt, who was a doctor, we went to see Space Odyssey, the film, Kubrick, Space yeah, Odyssey, Kubrick. and we were stoned out, out of our brains. And the, he said later on, what the film was about was that feeling of isolation which uh, he maintains was always a theme in his songs anyway. And he found, like, with that film, he was able to express it, express it in the form of, a, of an astronaut inside a capsule floating around the Earth with billions of people on the Earth and billions of stars in the sky, and yet he's all alone. And I saw it mainly as a cheap shot. I thought, David, you, all the songs you've been playing for me are nothing like Space Odd Oddity, you know. You, 
you're not going to write another song like that. He never did, actually. He never did write another song like that. I said, I don't like it. I don't, it's, not in line, it's not in line with what we're going into the studio with, what we've rehearsed and all that. So he said, well, I have to tell you that they're not going to let me record the album unless I record this. And I said, okay, well, there's Gus Dudgeon down the hall. He's our friend. He's dying to work with you. Gus Dudgeon, of course, worked with Elton John. And uh, maybe he'll like to do it. So David took my advice, went to Gus Dudgeon, and they recorded Space Oddity. And when he came back with that record, I thought it was amazing. I, I thought, wow, because the, the demo was pretty good. But still, I didn't see how it was going to fit on the album. And if you really listen to that album, it doesn't fit on the album. It, it opens the album. And the, the rest of the album's pretty good. And in all truth, there were no other singles from that album. He, David wasn't really a singles writer yet. He didn't understand how to write a single. And Space Oddity was more of a, um, an event. You know, it was, a, it, it was almost a novelty record, something that initially DJs wouldn't play. So it took a while for that to even chart. I think it was released three times be huh. before it, it got stuck and, and finally started climbing the charts. Right, can you imagine that happening today? I mean, that's just like... <laughs> just like well, that wouldn't happen today, and I don't think Space Oddity would right. be written today. You know, yeah. it's just different times. But he, he always put himself out on a limb, and that's what I loved about him. You know, he'd always take a risk. I take risks all the time, and that's the way we've, we fit into with each other. We fit well to it together. Yeah, so true or false, you mix Diamond Dogs on a mixing console on sawhorses in your uh, apartment kitchen or your house kitchen. Okay, uh, <laughs> false. Partially true, but false. Um, I had a good year. I think it was 74 or 75, and uh, money-wise, I had a lot of hits, T-Rex hits, everything. And my accountant said, you better, you better spend a lot of money quickly, or, or else you're going to have to pay this to Crazy the queen. Tax, yeah. <laughs> the queen will get your money. And so I had a house and I, that I just bought, and I wanted to have a home studio. So, and I had a little family. We, my, my wife and I had a, a young son. And it was just, we found the perfect house in Hammersmith in London and had the uh, ground floor gutted and refitted to, uh, with an isolated uh, room where you could, uh, it, it was isolated from the houses next door to us. It was like a room within a room put, built on cement pillars that went down into the earth and all that. And, uh, I bought a, a Trident uh, B range from uh, my friend Malcolm Toft, who is a great sure. desi designer and all that. And uh, I built a studio in, in, in my house. Like, it was a studio, it wasn't a kitchen. And um, it was a contr small control room, a studio that could, in a squeeze, have five musicians. I, I had a drum booth, so I could have four more, four musicians, four more musicians out there. Had it, a, it had a great sound. I even did string quartets in that room. But uh, no, there was, the, the kitchen was upstairs in my house where pe okay. my people lived. There was no kitchen involved. No kitchen was harmed. <laughs> and um, I had a dark room, however, just in the next room downstairs. So I used to develop, uh, I used to put it all away. Uh, I, I used to put all the chemicals away for the recording sessions. But, so that was my, my man cave, basically. Yeah. And were you doing most of your productions there as, after it was built, or were you working at other studios in London? And... 
What I was able to do there was uh, most of my mixing. Okay. And if I, if I had a big rock group, I really couldn't record a big rock group there. So I would do drums and loud, very, very loud guitars in, in other studios and then come back and finish my productions. I couldn't do big string sections, so I'd have to go out for that as well. But I could do about 50% of my recording and 100% of my mixing there. And it's true that on the first day, my first client was uh, David Bowie. I told him about, he, he phoned me up and he said, I just produced this album myself and I've been all over town to get a mix. I can't get a mix anywhere. I've tried 10, 11 studios. And I said, David, I just built a studio in my house. And he says, can I come and see it? Uh, I said, yeah, bring a tape. You know, it's all ready to go. Right. And then there was this one oversight. I didn't have uh, any chairs yet. They were being ordered, you know. And, so he came there and I, I had carpenter's horses because we were still doing some construction or we just finished our construction. And he and I sat on these carpenter horses whilst we mixed the ver first track of Diamond Dogs. Okay. And uh, it, it turned out great. <laughs> There's where, that's where the sawhorses come in. Yeah, and the rest of the thing where people might have gotten uh, the impression that there was a kitchen there was that uh, we didn't move in upstairs yet. My, my family didn't move in. There was no furniture in the whole house. But he wanted to come late every night. He wanted to start at about 7 and work into the night, and he wanted to eat there. So the following day, a big uh, furniture truck pulled up outside my house, and he bought a whole dining set for me. Four chairs, a table, silverware, cutler cutlery, uh, dishes, cups, glasses, napkins. Wow. And we put those into the studio section where he and I every night would dine. Nice. We'd have the food delivered. Right. And uh, hot food delivered. It was, that was unusual in those days. There was no you know, delivery food sure. services. Well, finally we get the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and so was that the record that you used the first digital delay on? Yes. I, I was an early user of, of Eventide. And, uh, I, uh, and also the, the very first sampling that, that was even possible. So I got the Eventide stereo digital delay, and this was wonderful for putting things left and right in the mix, you know, very tight, very tight delays, which you can hear on, on the record, used on the drums, on the vocals, special effects. And at the end of the um, record, it was a song called Big Brother, and he wanted the word brother repeated again and again to go into echo, and I thought, yeah, great. I said, I've got this thing the digital delay where I could, there's a button, I could throw it into the delay and it will sample the word brother. Unfortunately, it was only, the sampling was only up to about 75 milliseconds, you know. So I got in the bruh, bruh, <laughs> instead of brother. So at the end of it, you hear bruh, 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 bruh. Right. And it was, it was the eventide recycling, the, the bruh, bruh, bruh. And then I faded it out into plate echo and all that. Yeah. But he liked that better. I said, I'm sorry, David, I can't get brother into it. He goes, no, that's better. He said, that, it's weirder. that's weirder and yeah. better and cooler. <laughs> yeah. And so also, were you using the harmonizer at that time? You know, I'm that... not sure I had the harmonizer yet. I'm not sure it was available. But when it was available, I, it would be for the next album I produced, which was low. Right. Uh, so I think I got the harmonizer in the interim. And uh, I, in my home studio, I played it put on a, a master tape of something and I played every instrument through it to see exactly what I can do with this pitch shifting device. And when it came time to put it on drums, I went nuts with it. And I said, this is what I'm, this is a sound I have never heard before. 
Right. And it was that, that snare drum, after the snare drum was hit, it would go like that. And that was just, just dropping the pitch by maybe 10% and increasing the feedback. Right. So I took that to Paris with me in about, you know, another couple of months later. And uh, no one had even heard of the harmonizer, heard what it can do. But I showed David uh, and Dennis Davis, the drummer, what it can do to the snare. So. Of course, there were um, tape echoes and stuff being applied with Beatles and, uh, you know, automatic yeah. double tracking and all that stuff. But how were you sort of plugged into that in terms of a new a company making these new products? I mean, how did you come to be involved with Eventide? And this, like you said, nobody had heard this stuff before, and, and you probably were using it in ways that were unintentional. You yeah. Know? Well, I spoke to Tony, Tony Agnello. He he um, just he made it. His he and his partner made it, knowing that there, it, it would the main application was to change pitch without changing time, and. Uh, when uh, I was a good customer of the uh, the company that I was who was selling me audio equipment, and they knew I was a really good customer. Like when I built my studio, I spent thousands on the equipment, the multi-track tape. They sold everything to me. Right. So when the first harmonizer appeared, they phoned me before it was even made available. They said, "Tony, we've got something for you," and it was horrendously expensive. Oh, said, I'm sure. I said, "What does it do?" And they goes, "They says it change." They said it changes pitch, but not time. I want it. <laughs> and it was delivered the next day. And I had the first one in England. And no one knew I had it. No one knew it was available. It, was, it became available about six months later. So I, w I went to Paris with it, did all these tricks with it. And then when, even the record was released before the harmonizer was released. So everyone asked me, how did you get that sound? No one knew. It right, oh, right. Yeah. You and I wouldn't tell anybody. I said, I don't know. You know, this is something I... Like, I don't know who invented phasing and flanging, but I invented this, and I'm not going to give that secret away too quickly. You know? Right. When you're approaching a session now, or you know, when you're deciding to work with an artist, has your process changed that much in terms of pre-production and who you're choosing to work with? And are, are the songs the most important thing? Are the people the most important thing? Like, what, what are you looking for? And, and then how are you proceeding with a project? Well, from the early days, I had good luck with uh, producing Mavericks, Rebels, you know, Mark Bolin and David Bowie. Later on, Thin Lizzy, you know, who was like a pretty radical rock group. They weren't straight up. They were different, you know. Yeah. And that's who I always gravitated towards and always felt that I can't do the same old thing what other people are doing. I can't listen to the top 20 and imitate that. I'm really no good at that. And of course, the joke is that if you do imitate that, if you don't get it out fast enough, it sounds stale, you know. But if something, if you're if you're following today's trend, it's going to come out in two or three months, and it's going to sound stupid and stale. What I figured on doing is make something radically different every time, and the chances are far better of getting a hit with something that sounds strange, right? It, because the public's not dumb; they they want something different, you know. They they don't want the same bland thing all the time. I mean, I, I think I'm part of that public. There's not, I, some part, members of the public maybe do want the same sound all the time, but I'm part of that public who likes the, the, the more adventurous music. And so I make the music for myself, really. When somebody comes to you, are you doing an interview with them, seeing if you like them as a person, seeing what the music's like? And then how are you, how are you sort of discussing your vision with them? I will meet someone. I will listen to demos first. I mean, I wouldn't even have a meeting if I sure. wasn't interested. So 
I will be sent demos. And nowadays, I'm directed to a, a site, you know, with a hidden, a hidden site. And uh, if I like the music, then the person will come in. And it's the reverse. I don't tell them what, what my vision is. I want to know what their vision is. Where do they want this record to go? And why did they pick me? Because I have a few various ways I can go. I've, I've been involved in so many different genres. I can, you know, do, sure. they, do they want the T-Rex sound? Do they want the Bowie sound? I was instrumental in creating a lot of people's sounds, you know, but it's always like the artists kind of, I feel what they need and what will uh, amplify what they do, what'll, what'll, you know, magnify what they do. And uh, so I'm interested in their vision. And then I'm tenacious as a producer. I remind them constantly throughout the production that that's what they, what their goal is, what their desire is, you know, because they could lose their way and often do. And artists, you know, when sometimes you're in the middle of making a record, you'll hear something new coming out on the market and, and you want to jump, you know, jump horses in the midstream and do that sound and all that. So it's, I just keep everybody in the in the same zone for the for the making of the album and right. it's their vision that's more interesting than mine and sometimes you're playing bass sometimes you're hiring the band sometimes it's it is a band yeah so. i i'm 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 very uh, versatile i find myself often joining the band yeah in the sense of their the fifth member and with david bowie it's always been a partnership we always like after the spiders from mars he and i have always been the band with other people so I'm either playing bass for him or I played guitar for him many times and I've sung backing vocals with him. Or we, you know, the two of us have very strong opinions and we collaborate on how the drummer should play and, you know, all that. So we've, we've always been a team. And I was that way with Mark Bolin, really, because Mark Bolin was, once he'd get his stuff down on tape, which was the basic band sound, then... You know, and I would guide them through their performances, get the right takes, sometimes edit two takes together and all that. But then that's where I kicked in with the string writing, the backing vocals, and the mixing. I've always, always mixed my productions with very few exceptions. Right. And have you been always engineering them as well? I started engineering because when I had my own studio, I engineered all the time. You know, I used to love to set up mics in front of drums and all that. That's the most challenging thing to do and find new, newer ways to record a guitar amp. You know, I mean, my gosh, I've gone through so many permutations and mics and from building metal tunnels out of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff you build houses with and, and, and making little caves to put the guitar amp in. Yeah. Uh, I've tried all things. But then one day I just grew tired of engineering. I wanted to concentrate more on the music and I thought, that first part of the album, I'm finding, you know, getting the backing tracks done, I'm finding too exhausting. I didn't want to do it anymore. So over the years, I've been blessed with finding and working with some very talented engineers. And uh, not all of them worked out well. Some of them, you know, were too addicted to their own sound. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a really successful engineer, like, like if they have an identifiable drum sound, that's almost like having an old kind of hit sound. You know, that's going to grow tired and old. Mm -hmm. So the engineers that have successfully uh, work with me are open to changing their normal way of working, you know, and they'll listen to my suggestions and my ideas because I could call them out on anything. You know, they, they can't pull wool over my eyes. I mean, yeah, yeah. I know everything about engineering. Yeah. So, but I would prefer someone else who's a real expert take over those chores at the beginning. Usually, for instance, with um, 
Black Star, I use Kev Kevin Killen, mm -hmm. and I ad I adore him. He's an he's an amazing amazing engineer. But once we stopped tracking, I it was then David and myself. So I took over the engineering for the easier stuff like vocals, uh, sax overdubs, right. strings, things like that. Well, sometimes strings I don't I don't engineer anymore. But if I had to write them, you know, it's nice to have a, an engineer take. But like in the old days, I used to conduct the string section, go in and get the string sound, and have my my tape up punch us in and all that, you know. Yeah. But uh, I don't I don't know. It's because maybe I was afraid to let go as well in those days. It was. Sure. But now I don't mind. Yeah. Well, it's nice. The collaboration is good, you know, and it's yeah, spur yeah. it spurs new new thoughts and ideas. So with Black Star. Was that different having that band come in and play live? And, and what, what was this, you know, how well, did you guys make that? Record? Making Black Star was like making any, any other David Bowie album. We would start with a live band. David always started out with a live band. And <clears throat> through the years, you know who they are. You know, we had sure. used many drummers, many guitarists. And um, the only difference was this was a special band in the sense that it was the first time he worked with a non rock band. I mean, all the musicians in the past, like Earl Slick and uh, Reeves Gabrels and, uh, you know, Mick Ronson, they were rock and rollers, you know, the, the guitarists, the drummers were rock and rollers. Here we had this very well-rehearsed, well... Um, they were like more like uh, classical musicians where they practiced seriously, like seven hours a day. Like, like a really great jazz musician has the same training as a classical sure. musician, like a violinist, you know. The difference was that they, they, a lot of Black Star would take ones. We, mm. we would look at each other aghast after a take one and go, well, I can't see how we could improve on that. And the band would kind of just stand there, just waiting, like, should we do a take two? And we, we did a few, you know, but most of the time, because they, they play live, you know. And, yeah. And, and it sounded like David was in the room with them singing, even if the lyrics weren't totally f finished. Yeah, and that he, he was really part of the band and not just, um, you know, when you hear things like that, it's very encouraging to hear because he really is in there with them. He's in the trenches making yep. the record and, and f helping feed them, I mean, what his vision was. Well, for the both of us, our, our challenge was he wanted me to go and listen to them live before, well before we re recorded the album. So I did, did see their live shows a lot, like he did. And he knew that it was going to be challenging for us. The, we knew that these guys were really a high cut of musicians. You know, they were really up there so, uh, technically and creatively. So um, we, he, he had to really get up to scratch. And so did I as a producer when we were working with these guys. I never did anything so complicated in my life, you know. For, so, um, but yeah, he was in the trenches. He was really enjoying himself. And so was the so was uh, Donnie McCaslin and his band. They they had never done anything like this themselves. Sure. So we we were challenging each other. You know, they never, you know, D David uh, was always um, like by then. You know, he he was writing very memorable songs, and Donnie McCaslin's material is basically instrumental, mm -hmm. and they're just blowing all the time. They're yeah. just like doing improvisation and all that. So they had to be, you know, corralled into a certain structure. Which, which was absolutely wonderful. Well, it's interesting because he has, you know, subsequently gone on to put singers on his records, and I know he's done some collaborations with Mark, and yeah. um, that's, it's, you know, it, it sort of tilted him in a new direction as well yeah. by having that opportunity. And um, 
Yeah, the spirit of that record is, is I mean, on, for, for multiple reasons, very special. Well, and from the day we met, he told me how much he, he loved uh, Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker. Like, he was always a jazz aficionado. Hmm. And uh, I think all his life, he, he flirted. He, he worked with Gil Evans on hmm. Absolute Beginners. And he flirted with making a, j a jazz album almost all his life. Hmm. But he finally got his wish. Yeah. And it, it uh, you know, there's there's wisps of that throughout his career. Yeah. Um, and especially the vocals and the melody, they're often very sort of, they were often very esoteric and sort of odd, you know, the, yeah. the, the harmon the way that it, the melody sat over the, the harmonic yeah. changes and stuff. It was, you know, Bowie always had yeah. an amazing uh, his knack for those melodies were so unique his melodies and his chord changes too he was always always put in that odd chord where you would least expect it and that was part of his hallmark as well as a, as a writer and even on the hits yeah like a, like even a track like less dance i mean that's yeah. pretty it's pretty weird yeah you know it's amazing i also wanted to talk about you have a you have a solo record and are you producing it and how is that being the artist and producer for you, do you need, desire, um, are repulsed by, you know, an outside opinion on your own stuff, you know, that you've provided to so many people, uh, you've played that role. How can you play it for yourself? Well, I, uh, you know, I told that little story about how my publisher hated my songs and set me on this career as a record producer. And that was about 50 years ago. And um, I did make a solo album in the late 70s, which wasn't really good. I, I didn't like it. I mean, it was, there's about, about half of it I do like, and the other half I, was, should, I had no right recording. But, um, okay, so 25, 30 years on now, I've gained so much experience, and I've worked with some of the best songwriters in the world, which kind of I've absorbed. You know, I've seen and, and, and I've, I've kind of feel, felt through David and, and working with other people, just how to write a good song. So, and I was pretty harsh with myself because I, I recorded 11 songs. I, I wrote the 11th song just about two weeks before the album was finished. And uh, I threw away about 25 songs. So I was really critical of myself. And I think I made the right choices. And I don't think, you know, like to get someone in to produce me at this stage, I think I know what I'm doing now as a producer. Again, I have to say 50 years, it's not, it's not a short time, you know, yeah. I've been... So, I don't know, I, I did the first one, my first new album, and I'm talking about two albums now. So there's one out now called It's a Selfie. It's only been out digitally for a few weeks, but I'm, I'm getting, going, the, the CDs and the vinyls made. I'm holding off on the vinyl. I don't know if, if, if it's going to warrant, I don't know how many records I'm going to sell, but I do gigs with my... Um, my band, Holy Holy, and I know we can sell CDs. At the, the people who come to our shows always want to buy sure. CDs, you know. But anyway, with this one, I, all I did really was made my demos that I pr produced over the last 10 years sound better and better and better. I kept tweaking the vocals, tweaking the lyrics, uh, using, uh, doing my own drum loops and, and drum programming, playing my own bass parts, even tweaking them, re-recording them, re-recording. So then I came to the conclusion, why do I have to re-record this album with real musicians? This sounds really good to me. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are doing this. A lot of people are the only artist on their own records. 
I'll, uh, so I released It's a Selfie, and I called it It's a Selfie because it's a selfie. Yeah. And I continued it being a selfie with the, all the photos on the sleeve. Like the, I took all the photos. They were all selfies, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I thought, okay, this is a good theme. This is really good, and it's a fun idea. Yeah, it's fun. But immediately upon releasing It's a Selfie, I started writing my next album. And I am now three and a half songs into my new album which uh, is kind of taking political overtones. I don't know why, but... Yeah, I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> I guess I think I want someone removed from office as soon as possible. <laughs> but anyway, this album will no doubt come out. It'll be ready for next October. Okay. And uh, so uh, that's what I'm working towards. But however, I'm writing this album in a year's time. Like, it's only going to take me about six months to write this album instead of 12 years. Mm -hmm. So this one, I'm as soon as I get these three songs up to scratch, which they are now, I'm going to start recording with real musicians next month. So the new album will be a totally different concept to the one that's out now. Okay. And I'm going to try to do a David Bowie on myself and be radical and be different. And yeah, you got to do, do you to you. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not opposed to working with a producer. There's so many people, like my son Morgan, a lot of people whose, whose ideas I respect. You know. Right. I, no one's asked to produce my album. Though, so. <laughs> They're too intimidated. What's knocking your socks off musically? Like what bands are you listening to that are getting you excited or somebody that you'd love to work with or just records that you, you find yourself being gravitated you know, back to? Well, I always look forward to the next Mark Kozilek album. Yep. This is something uh, we started listening to, David and I. David turned me on to him. He, he played uh, Mark's album, Benji, to me. And I was aghast. I, I said, who is this guy? He's amazing. I had no, I, I didn't know about his former bands or anything like that. I, had, I knew nothing about Mark. And then I, I, I went online to see some, like, he's had some scathing uh, articles written about him, too. I said, well, I like him. I really do like him. Because <laughs> if, if he can write music like that, he's bound to insult some people and, you know, be outspoken and all that. And uh, so th I really put him, like, on top of my list. I would really love to work with him. My only fear is that I kind of worship him. And uh, whereas, you know... I avoided worshiping David Bowie because I grew up with him. You know, he was a friend of 48 years. You know, yeah. we were contemporaries. Mark is somebody who just came into my life, and I'm still trying to figure him out. Yeah. I've I've had social meetings. I've dinner. I've had dinners and lunches with him. Uh, we we did a mutual interview for for some magazine or something like that. But Mark is just sensational. His, his insight and his style of writing, his talking, singing style. Plus his musicianship, which oh, is incredible. incredible. Yeah, and it's morphed over time. I mean, talk about somebody that hasn't just sat around and done the same things. I mean, a lot of those Red House Painters records were very sort of the same. Yeah. They they were very American Music Club scene, like sadcore, slow, wet, yeah. you know, and beautiful. He's, uh, he's liberated himself from that. Yeah, and then from the Sun Kill Moon stuff and then moving into only playing nylon string guitar yeah. and then sort of getting more into the spoken word thing and just... You know, it's really continued to push into a direction. And his output is phenomenal. Like, God, I don't know how many records that guy puts out a year, but it's, it's not one. And I saw him live twice, and uh, once with a trio and once solo. And it's just as fascinating. You know, I could listen to, you know, a two-hour concert, just him and a guitar. Yeah, it's very... 
very haunting and melancholy. And of course, as you as you know, and you get to know Mark, what a what a genuinely sweet, caring person he is. You know, he's yeah. he's not he's not all the internet hoo ha. You know? No, I know he's a, he's a one off. He's a real unique one off person, and I wouldn't know what I could do with him as a producer. But I know that I like him so much that something would result. We would we would find something to do together. I know he records fairly quickly too. Yeah. Which I'm not, you know, that's not unknown to me. I, David used to record very quickly. Even Black Star sessions were like quick, you know. Yeah. So uh, I, I wouldn't force him into a long, tedious, you know, concept album, you know. Yeah. But I could bring, I could introduce some new flavors to into his style. Yeah. Well, I know that the the uh, the admiration is mutual. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe one day that'll happen. Yeah. There's an artist I've been associated with for, for a few years now, and that's Christine Young. Okay. She's a great uh, singer-songwriter from, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. And um, I, I produced about maybe five albums with her. And then the one before the last one, I said to her, you should produce yourself. You know, and I said, you should get the credit because so many of these ideas are yours. She writes brilliant arrangements, and I was getting all the credit in the press for writing her arrangements. So two albums ago, she was the producer of her album, and I was kind of co-producer, but I didn't want the credit. I didn't need the credit. I was just happy to be part of it. And then her last album, she threw a something. You, you've got to, this album must be heard by more people. Uh, she threw a real um, sidewinder at me, and she said, I want to do the new album on cassette. On eight-track cassette, mm. and I said, "Yeah, you and everybody else." I said, "Do yeah. you know what the, what the problems are?" And she says, "I want to do it on cassette. I like the way my voice sounds on cassette. I know I've got a very bright voice that some people consider harsh, but I know is whenever I record myself on a cassette recorder, I sound nice. I sound nice to myself. So I had an eight-track Tascam that I got renovated." Luckily, in this building, there's a place uh, that fixes old audio equipment. How convenient. Yeah, very convenient. It costs a lot of money to get it renovated, but when I, when I put a, a chromium cassette in there and we started recording, the results were fantastic. It, I used the DBX noise reduction. Yeah. Well, maybe I didn't, and I think I switched it out. So I just recorded hot, and I said to Christine that if you want tape to sound great, you're going to have to record it hot. You know, you have to blow it out a little bit. Yeah. But the machine was so well lined up, and chromium tape is so durable that as hot as I could record, I never really quite got it to saturate like old-fashioned analog tape. I mean, the tape speed was probably three and three quarters. I mean, you know, all these factors should have done it. But anyway, it did smooth out everything a bit, and it was really a nice sound. And once we bounced back and forth and did, we went as far as we could go, we went over to Pro Tools. And then we did some of her vocals in Pro Tools. But, and she said, see, I don't, like, I don't like that sound. I want it to sound like it's on tape. So I ended up flying her vocals back onto cassette and then flying it back into Pro Tools again. And we got the sound. And then I had to, a little problem of sometimes lining it up because the sync was never good. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. But that, that, that didn't matter. I had always had the reference on, in Pro Tools. Like, I knew right. where to line up her sure. uh, analog. You know, I could just line it up right with the way she sang it. So in the end, we have this album out now called The Subset, which is entirely produced by Christine Young, and I'm merely her engineer on it. And uh, this woman has recorded with Bowie, 
uh, so many people. Mar Morrissey, she's recorded with Morrissey. She opened for Morrissey hundreds of times. Wow. So she's quite a, she, you know, I don't know, she's, she has the gravitas of, of David Bowie and uh, other legends, you know. She's yeah. the stuff legends are made of, but she's not that famous yet. Wow. Christine Young, two, two E's, K-R-I-S-T-E-E-N. All right. Well, thanks, David. I mean, Tony. It's <laughs> <laughs> too much David Bowie. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>